everybody. Hi. And welcome to Sharing Everything. I'm Joe. I'm Katie. That's Katie. Our last name is collectively Balecki because that's what Long happens. Long last name. That's what happens when you get uh, married. Yeah. Was was the joke that collectively Balecki is our last name? Yeah. <laughs> is that like hyphenated? Is it all yes, one word? Yes, it's hyphenated. You don't remember your last name used to be collectively. You were no. Katie collectively, oh. <laughs> which which sounds like some like a like a '90s pop punk band. Yeah, it kind of does. Uh and. Anyway, we're married and we like yep. making each other watch movies that we like to watch. Yes. Because it's the only way we can really reconcile watching movies more than once. Mm-hmm. Or at least for me. I know you like to watch movies over and over again. Yes, I do. Katie. Joe. Beloved. Beloved Joe. <laughs> what what movie did I have you watch this week? We watched American Graffiti. American Graffiti? Yeah. What's it about? Well, it's one of those uh, takes place in one night movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's about this group of high school graduate, recent high school graduate guys and a couple girls. Um, They meet up for one last night of fun before a couple of them go away to college. Or do they? I don't know. We'll find out. Mm -hmm. And... uh, I believe it takes place in the early 60s That's or late what, 50s, maybe. Yeah, that, around that time. Um, and it's a group of four guys. I don't recall any of their names. Kurt, Steve, John, Terry. And then there's one of their girlfriends who is also one of the other guy's sisters. Um, Lori. Lori. Anyway, so they all meet up at this, like, um, drive-in type restaurant, like a Sonic type of thing, and uh, they talk about their plans, and they, um, let's see, the the guy who's played by Ron Howard, he uh, t- is the one with the girlfriend. That's Steve. Steve. Steve and his girlfriend have a discussion, and Steve says, you know what? I want to be free to do whatever I want when I get to college. So how about we decide to see other people? And you can tell that Lori's kind of like, well, I don't know about that. But then she decides she doesn't want to be childish and she just wants to let him do what he wants. She's like, fine. But then she gets very snippy and she is kind of cold throughout the movie. Um, Then one of them, I believe, is it Steve who gives the car to Mm -hmm. the other kid? What's his name? Larry? Terry. Terry. Gives the car to Terry. Terry's kind of like a nerdy looking guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he seems to be rather socially awkward. Mm-hmm. But he gets this car. And this is a really nice car. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, I've got a car. This is like a status symbol. I'm going to be so cool. I'm going to drive around. Because apparently that's what they do. They have like this strip, like a downtown type block. Like mm-hmm. they just drive around in circles. Like that's a date apparently. That's hanging out with their friends. Just driving. And just looking for something to do. Yeah, you're yelling out the window at each other as other people drive by. You're admiring each other's cars. Some of them are racing. It's a, it's an interesting thing. Um, at one point, one of the guys who I think is a little bit older... He has this really nice car, and he's one of the guys who does the racing. Um, He is driving around, and he yells into this car of girls, and he asks if one of them will come 
ride around with him and they're all kind of like oh no we're having a girls night and then he's like please just one of you and then they volunteer the little girl in the car she's like 12 or something i think she's 14 okay she's 14 that doesn't make it okay to get into a car with a stranger no like she just gets in the car and they start driving and the guy's unaware that she's young and then he gets in the car and he looks at her and he's like oh uh because he thought it was gonna be like a girl he could like have a conquest with or something mm-hmm. and uh so there's sort of like it unfolds into these little vignettes or little episodes or something um so we've got that guy in the car with the girl and they're driving around and um sort of learning about each other or whatever then there's the two of the guys and Lori. They go to the freshman hop, which I guess is a sock hop for the incoming freshman for the following year. Yeah, which is a, not a bad idea. No, it's not. That's, That's a great, like, mixer kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I wish our school had done something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but yeah, so they go to that dance. Um, I feel like something happens at the dance, but I don't remember what. Um... Oh, Lori and What's-His-Face, they win something. They, they, they had been like homecoming king and queen or something and so they got like recognized okay yeah um the guy who's not sure if he wants to go to college or not talks to the young hot teacher who all the girls are oh yeah that's right that Uh, creepy thing yeah there are a lot of creepy moments in this movie yeah well like in a so the 50s right right yeah it's it's just a little weird. Um, so, oh, and then the guy who gets the car, the nerdy one, Terry, mm-hmm. he finds a girl mm-hmm. that he likes and he thinks, oh, I have this car. She'll like me. So he pulls up next to her on the side of the road and just starts talking to her. And I'm like, that's creepy, too. Um, but the girl decides to um, get in the car with him and they drive around. Um, and, oh, the the girl asks him to go get them some liquor Mm -hmm. so the kid goes to terry goes to a liquor store he keeps trying to get people to buy him um i don't know what it was um something whiskey he gives them the money they're like oh yeah sure and then they go in and then they go out the back door and they just took his money and so then he gives money to a guy again and he goes in turns out that guy was robbing the place but he was kind enough to get Terry the whiskey on his way out. Mm-hmm. Threw it to him. And then Terry and girl, they go into the woods and start doing some ooh-la-la. And uh, then they hear something. And then somehow there's one of the other guys shows up in the woods. I couldn't figure out how that happened. Yeah. Well, that's just where they go to Okay. You know, um, be intimate. Anyway, so... Then the car gets stolen at some point. Yeah, they decide that they're going to go down by the water to, uh, because there's too many people out by where oh, the cars that's are parked. Right. They want to be a little bit more private, and then he gets himself the car stolen. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he he finds the car at some lot. He tries to get it back. He gets beat up. Um, and then I think was it a different guy who tied the police car to something yeah so there there's another subplot where the guy who's not sure if he wants to go to college or not meets up oh, with the local right. like, like greaser gang, gang yeah the pharaohs yeah and uh he's sitting on their car watching tv in a sh- shop window mm-hmm. and ends up scratching it 
in yeah. air quotes because I'm sure he didn't actually scratch it. But then they just bring him around mm-hmm. and uh, he ends up being cool enough to hang with him. So they say, well, um, you know, screw with the cops for us and then you can be a pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Um, then, of course, the guy who, who does the car racing, who's with the little girl, mm-hmm. uh, finally meets Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. Who who is an antagonist character to him who wants to race him because he's the best racer that there is. Mm-hmm. Um, guy who's who's not sure if he wants to go to school meets up with Wolfman Jack. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. I like that part a lot. Yep. Um, Ron Howard uh, decides that he is in love with his girlfriend after all. Um, she was very devoted to him. She was, that, and that she was, deserves better than that guy. That's true, but... Yeah, I liked how in love with him she seemed and how believable it was acted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end, uh, dude gets on the airplane and, and decides he's going to go. Yeah. And everyone says goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we find out that basically like everybody died or had really boring lives. Yeah, like one guy, the racer guy, I think he said he was hit by a drunk driver like five years later or something mm-hmm. like that. There's um, another guy who went into the military and was reported died. missing in action. And then there's one who's just like an insurance yeah, guy. Yeah, <laughs> Ron Howard just became an insurance agent. <laughs> I can't remember what the other one was. Yeah. some Something equally like unremarkable, yeah. which I think was the point. Yeah. Right? How everything feels super important mm-hmm. when, when you're a teenager. So, so Katie, why did, why did I have you watch this movie, do you think? Um, well, it's sort of one of those, you know time period coming of age stories that i really enjoy Mm -hmm. um so i think you had me watch because that also possibly because of the structure of it the little vignette episodic type feeling of it Mm -hmm. i think that we both kind of enjoy stories that are told interestingly Mm -hmm. yeah yeah primarily just because it was a teen movie set in the in the late 50s Mm -hmm. but we can talk about the I think we've talked about period pieces yeah. a lot recently, mm-hmm. uh, but what? So talk about the the narrative structure. What you liked and didn't like about it. Um, I guess what I didn't like about it was at first I could not figure out what was going on, who these people really were, why I was watching their stories, and like sort of whose story it was. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of. As the movie progressed, I sort of realized that it was kind of a collective story type of thing. Mm-hmm. Collective Balecki kind of story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of unfolded in sort of that intertwiny kind of story way, but also separately. Um, so that sort of it started out as me not really liking how it was told, but then I sort of got into it. It was kind of jarring because it seemed like we cut so quickly between some of the stories sometimes that I couldn't quite keep up. Um, and sometimes it felt like, what was the point of that scene I just watched? Because the next time we came back to that person's story, it was kind of like, eh. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did like that the characters... Oh, and that was probably one of the other problems I had with it is that I couldn't keep track of who was who, mm-hmm. and I didn't know their names, and I still don't really know their names. Yeah. Um, however, the stories were different enough that 
they were different yet complementary to each other. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed that. Like, for two of them, a car was a really big deal. Mm-hmm. And then for one of them, he's kind of trying to find his place. And so he joins this gang and... Um, Un- unwittingly joins. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of like... Uh, and then the other one... Who was the other one? Ron Howard. What was his... Th- oh, yeah. And then he's fighting with his girlfriend. Yeah. Um. So, it sort of... Like, they sort of played off each other. But the fact that they were all sort of like this big friend group at the beginning... Mm-hmm. Like, it didn't really come together again until the end when they were leaving. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what the question was, but... Hopefully that answered it. The, the question was talk about the narrative structure. Oh, okay. I kind of did that, I suppose. It's sort of, it was sort of like one of those bookend stories where they started out together, they went their separate ways, and then they came back at the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of these sort of episodic stories because it feels more real to me, especially when it's teen-focused, mm-hmm. right? Because... If you were to follow one of them around for the entire 90 minutes of the movie, there would be some things that would just have to be rather unbelievable. Yeah. Granted, there were some things that were kind of fantastical, like the car getting stolen, but that's at least believable. Because, you know, like that's what happens if you're stupid and you leave your car unlocked mm-hmm. or whatever and get stolen. Um, so I like that, and I, I like that it had different sort of archetypes Mm -hmm. that all felt believable because of that because Mm -hmm. you could you could break it up and spend less time on each person each person felt more real to me Mm -hmm. because you don't have to fill time again with things that wouldn't necessarily happen and because they all split up you could see who they were individually rather than just having like Here's the character who you identify with as the audience, and here's their nerd friend, and their hot rod friend, mm-hmm. and their smart friend, yeah, and then the normal person who you identify with. Everyone has their own quirks and all seems normal in their own microcosm of, of themselves and who they're with, mm-hmm. and I w- I'm super into that. Um. So we watch a lot of teen movies and coming-of-age movies and mm-hmm. stuff, and you read a lot of those books. Yep. So one thing that was brought up in a video essay that I watched was the dialogue and the writing of this movie mm-hmm. compared to other teen movies. Uh, did you feel like this was more believable in terms of how they talked? I know it was a period piece, so yeah. it's hard to judge, but there weren't any of those, like... In this moment, I could swear we were infinite. No. Sort of like Richard Linklater, sort of. Right. You know. No, it was. It felt rather believable. Like none of them seemed, um, like to be. None of them seemed like the teen vehicle for an adult making a point. Um, granted, I'm sure they were all adults when they were playing these characters. Oh, sure. But, yeah. Um, no, it seemed very realistic although some of the 1950s or 60s speak was a little off-putting just because I, there's one specific thing that i think Lori kept saying like a word or a term or some sort of slang phrase and i really wish i had remembered to look it up before this but it was it felt like every time she said it, i'm like really did they say that it was just a weird little slang type term 
that felt really weird and it kind of reminds me of like I saw this um this comic the other day and it was a baby boomer drawing the the comic was by a baby boomer and they drew this comic about how teens speak today Mm -hmm. and it was like um let's pose for a selfie what should we hashtag this let's put it up on instagram and then it was like let's geotag this guys and i'm just like nobody talks like that so it kind of it kind of reminded me of that like like it felt like maybe they might not have actually said that had they been teenagers at that time but they put it in to be like oh this is a teen thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) so but it felt overall generally pretty realistic um that's kind of one of my pet peeves is when there's one character who's like they're so smart and they're so above all of their teenage peers and they just have such sophisticated thoughts and they have to they have to express themselves so elaborately and correctly because the way that their friends speak is just so young and boring and dumb and dull. Yeah, so. you you have you have a few characters that are just too smart by half. Yeah, exactly. Joss Whedon does that a lot. Yeah. Um, especially in Buffy, like everyone was just witty. Yeah, all, all the, the time. time. Yeah, everyone was always super quick, and I don't have any friends that are that quick. No. I no. mean, I'm that quick. Yeah. I'm really smart and clever and witty and, and too smart by half, but nobody else is. So I guess I'm the main character in, in, in the, in the ethnocentric teen movie. I suppose. That's me. I'm, I'm riding in the back of the, in the back of the flatbed bed truck saying profound things. I guess. Um, so what do you think is generally the point of your young adult teen movie coming of age story being that you're the expert of the two of us what's what's the point why do we make these um i think well two reasons i think one of them is to serve as a sort of it's okay guys everything will work out kind of movie for teenagers who are watching these and they're thinking oh my life sucks and then they see these movies and they're kind of like oh so things started out kind of crappy for them but they sort of realize at the end that everything was going to be okay um and then the other one is for like people like us who are past this age but we still like feel it so deeply like we can empathize with all of these characters and you're like, oh, yeah, kind of the same but opposite as teenagers watching it. Like, remember when we thought everything wasn't going to be okay? But look at us now. Everything's okay. Mm, okay. I think it's just sort of like, it's like the, to me, coming of age movies are the comfort food of movies. Okay. Sort of, sort of like romantic comedies or something like that. Not really. I don't really think romantic comedies are great. <laughs> well, yeah, but they're still sort of comfort food. Kind of. Like, no, I consider them more junk food, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Comfort there's, food. There's a difference. There's a fine line. Like, comfort food is the food you eat when you want to feel better, and junk food is the food you eat when you feel bad and you want to, like, wallow to me. That's mm. how I feel about okay. it. Okay. That probably doesn't make any sense, but in my mind, it's, that sounded very... <laughs> there's a nuance. Yeah. There's a, there's a fine line. I'm sure, like, romantic comedies are fun. Like, I enjoy watching them, mm-hmm. but they're kind of just, like... There's less to get out of them than, like, a coming-of-age movie to me. Sure. Probably because it's only focused on a love triangle or boy-meets-girl kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What, whereas that can be an element of a coming-of-age movie, but to me, those kind of movies are so much bigger and more, like, important, I guess. Okay. 
does this movie fit in with that comfort food um, category for you or is it or is it different I'm not sure. I enjoyed this movie, but to me, it didn't really hit all of the bases of a coming-of-age movie for me, like a typical coming-of-age movie. Mm -hmm. Like, I would definitely classify it as one, but not like the, this is what a coming-of-age movie is kind of thing. Yeah. Um... I mean, and I'm not sure exactly why that is, but I didn't get the same feeling from it that I got when watching, insert any one of our past episodes here. Um, so, I don't know. There were... It could be because I, I didn't really identify with any of the characters. Um, it could be because it was... I didn't get enough of a single person, maybe. I don't know. I think it was because... It feels more like an actual slice of life movie that could than be. a teen movie. And mm-hmm. I like that better because I can still identify with a lot of the teen coming of age sort of things that they have. Trying to pick up girls, trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life. There was a time before you. <laughs> no, you said you still identify with I said, hmm, well, are you still I mean, trying to pick up girls? <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> uh, now my train of thought has been derailed. You still identify with them. You, you killed Thomas the Tank Engine, Katie. He's burning. He's screaming. Mayor Topham Hat is angry. I'm sorry. There are noises happening. Our, our blowers just kicked on. So I can still, I can still like get all of those things but it doesn't feel like there's a profound message at the end of it that's it that's what it is because it i think it didn't really have that cathartic feeling at the end it was just kind of like yeah either you're gonna die or you're gonna be kind of boring like (laughs) i'm not I, i like that better really yeah there's there's there has to be a point in your life when you realize you just aren't special you know, like, average is average for a reason. Mm-hmm. Most people are average. And as much as I love inspirational things, there, there, there needs to be a point in everyone's life when they realize that, oh, I'm not going to change the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I was around in the 60s during the civil rights movement, I would be just as complicit as I am today with any sort of injustice that's happening now. If I was in the Middle Ages, I would be a peasant, not a knight. Mm-hmm. And that's who I am. I am an average dude. And I do things like cruise around with my buddies looking for something to do. And there's something beautiful and simple about that. There's 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 something just like real about this movie with with that sort of thing. Because while I never drove around with my friends at night looking for looking for chicks or something to do, it still is a very close sentiment to how my formative teen years were spent. Mm-hmm. Granted, you couldn't make a movie of it because they were spent either walking around in the woods, making fun of each other, or sitting on a couch in a basement playing video games and drinking Mountain Dew. Mm-hmm. But the sentiment is still there that, like, we're not... None of us are really talking about anything real, mm-hmm. right? 
we're all still trying to figure ourselves out. We feel alone, even though we're surrounded by friends. And at some point, we all just sort of stopped becoming friends because we all were at different points in our life. And that as a movie feels great to me because it... Because when I watch a, 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 a Perks of Being a Wallflower or The Edge of Seventeen, a lot of it feels kind of like um, like the teenage version of the male power fantasy, where like watching Conan the Barbarian is a male power fantasy, because it's like, oh man, I want to be huge and have a big sword and ravish women. Or, or the sort of like teen escapism memories, like, I wish that high school had actually been that high stakes. You know, the edge of 17 feels very high stakes the whole time. Everything feels so important, and that's how it's supposed to feel. And life back then just wasn't like that. You know, we did not talk like that. We 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 did not have problems that were that big. Um and I don't know, like that's nice to watch because it feels like escapism. Like, oh man, I wish high school would have been that interesting. Mm-hmm. Looking at it as a as a twenty something now, where when I watch an American Graffiti, I kind of see, oh well, that's that's a lot closer to how high school was. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? Yeah. No, I agree, but. I'm one of those people where I want something that's not exactly like my high school experience because I already did that and I want something new. Mm-hmm. So while I like like reminiscing or whatever, feeling those feelings, like I want them to be elevated a little bit because it's like, I already did high school, so let's do something just a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can see it, but... Yeah, I guess I just like the authenticity a little bit better just because I get the the hyper-real so much more often yeah i can see that and then there's the most important part of this story of this movie and that's wolfman jack oh yeah and that's the reason i wanted to become a radio dj is it really that whole bit is, is what did it for me cool it's part of my favorite trope in movies which is where a radio dj narrates the film mm-hmm. as it's happening mm-hmm. um but there's something about the kid going to find him and him just being a dude in a box basically mm-hmm. chatting into a microphone every once in a while and playing some records that is just like the romantic version of what radio is yeah. to me it's so like wonderful there's something there's just something about that image of a dude just surrounded by records with a microphone and he's just there all night mm-hmm. just talking and then the sun comes up and he goes home and he sleeps mm-hmm. that is just so like romantically beautiful to me that is why I got into radio. Hmm. I'm glad to know that. I particularly liked how it was like it's it's going to sound silly it sort of reminded me of like Santa Claus Mm-hmm. Like how the guy's like, no, I just play his tape sometimes. Like he sends them to me and then I play them. Like I'm just, I'm just the button pusher. I'm just watching everything. And then as the kid is walking out, he turns around and he sees the guy putting on his Wolfman Jack voice. Mm-hmm. And it kind of just reminds me of like that 
this is like sort of a magical experience like i just met the guy and he's just like oh no i'm not the guy don't worry about it mm-hmm. and i don't know why that made me think of santa claus but well, th- there, there's actually some conversations some brief conversations among the other characters in the movie where it's like do you really think that he like broadcasts all over the world like how do you think he does that oh yeah okay that's probably it was like a subconscious kind of connection mm-hmm. on my part yeah i i liked that a lot that to me that scene was like the well i have another favorite thing but to me that scene was like one of the biggest payoffs in the movie for sure and before we watched this i felt like that was a bigger part of it like i felt like that character the way i remembered it was he spent like the whole movie trying to find him Mm -hmm. where it was more of just a thing at the end yeah but even still what was your favorite part since you alluded to that darling I just loved the, as awful as it was, I loved that the little girl got in the car with that guy and mm. they just drove around together and she was being a snobby little kid and she's like, <laughs> she's like, they get pulled over and she's like, I'll tell him you raped me if you make me go home or something yeah. like that. That was awesome. <laughs> I loved how like feisty and how feisty she was and how she was like learning to interact with people who weren't her because they sort of said in the beginning like her older sister and all of her friends like she tags along and nobody really likes her and that's why they offered her up to this random dude Mm -hmm. so it's just kind of like it seems like she didn't really have anyone to listen to or talk to or anything so she's you can see her kind of trying to get her footing in this whole interacting with people who actually don't hate me kind of thing Mm -hmm. and it's funny because the i don't remember that character at all the his name um he like at first he's like oh this is a kid and he's just kind of like okay well where do you think they're going i'll drop you off um and she's just like no and so he keeps her in the car and then he's sort of like you can see him sort of like opening up to her and then becoming like yeah this isn't a half bad kind of night it's not what i expected but i'm talking to this kid and i kind of enjoy her so and then when he drops her off at the end it was he had to do some sort of creepy like um how, how did that unfold it was like oh because he wanted her to go home finally yeah after they'd been around for a while and she wouldn't tell him where she lived so at some point they pulled off somewhere and he's like you know yeah i can't control myself anymore <laughs> like i need you and she's like Whoa, hold on yeah i was just joking before like it's so f- like that's terrible and it's kind of sucks that he even had to do that to her like he didn't have to but mm-hmm. that's how he chose to to kind of go against her to get her to do yeah. what he wanted but it was just like it was so funny to me that and the whole i'll tell him you raped me thing mm-hmm. like those two parts of that story for some reason even though they're both based on awful things but mm-hmm. that just made me think ugh, that was so funny and like authentic feeling yeah well, well, that part of him doing that was kind of him calling her bluff, too. Yeah. Because there was a lot of that, like, I may be 14, but I know my way around a man type of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, all right, cool. <laughs> I mean, you've been riding around in my car all day, wasting all my gas. You got to pay me back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can... There, there were some cool things where they were, like, walking around the junkyard and he was telling her stories. Mm-hmm. And she... You can kind of tell that nobody else really understands him because to everybody else, he's just the racer. Yeah. From the cop to Harrison Ford to the rest of his friends, he's just the dude who's good at racing cars. Mm -hmm. And he's like, 
you know, like it's really dangerous and dumb to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like the only one he can really talk to about it because she doesn't have any preconceived notions about like who he's supposed to be. Right. right? Yeah. Which is probably as like lofty as this movie gets in terms of messages, right? Yeah, no, there wasn't, like, a big, like, message in capital letters with italics and mm-hmm. underline kind of thing. I mean, every, everybody learned their own lessons. Yeah. But you it know, wasn't, like, a... Kid who was unsure realized that he does need to go to college. He does need to get out of here. He does need to go off and find himself. Ron Howard realized that he needs to stay mm-hmm. because he loves his girl. Terry realized that he needs to, you know... That he is cool mm-hmm. and that he doesn't need to try so hard. and Yeah. Yeah. You ready for some trivia? You betcha. Are you? Mm-hmm. All right. Let's see what IMDb has for us. Let's see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh. When Charles Martin Smith pulls up on the Vespa in the beginning, his crash into the building wasn't scripted. He generally lost control of the bike, and Lucas kept the camera rolling. (laughs) Harrison Ford was asked to cut his hair for the film. He refused, stating that his role was too short and offered to wear a hat instead. Which is why he was wearing that big, ugly cowboy hat the whole time. Oh, yeah. When Wolfman Jack makes an on-air prank called to Pinky's Pizza, his voice, or the voice on the other end, belongs to George Lucas. Due to the low budget, George Lucas was unable to pay all of the crew members. He offered to give many of them a screen credit in lieu of payment, and they accepted. Traditionally, only department heads received screen credit. Giving screen credit to so many crew members has now become a tradition, which is why closing credits are so long now. Mm. So not everybody used to be in the roll in credits, which I guess makes sense. Like, if you watch those 50s movies, it's like director, producer, cast, and that's it. Yeah, that's true. One of the main reasons why so many studios initially turned down the script was because George Lucas wanted at least 40 songs on the soundtrack, which would obviously lead to a large bill over the rights to these songs. Universal finally agreed to fund the picture when Lucas's friend Francis Ford Coppola, fresh from the success of The Godfather the year before, came on board as producer. <laughs> the music was really good in this. It felt very authentic, and a lot of it was diegetic. What does that mean? It was like actually happening, like coming out of their radios. Oh, yeah. And stuff. Yeah, I like it when movies do that. And it's sort of the inverse of what normally happens in films, where the music would cut out when serious things were happening, mm-hmm. rather than music swelling when serious things yeah. were happening. Universal saw so thought so little of the film, not knowing how to market it, as certain and certain that it has no stars, it would flop. That as it has no stars, it would flop. Mm. That it sat on the shelf for six months before the studio finally decided to release it. To their great surprise, it became enormously successful at the box office. Which just shows that for the past 40 years, big studios don't understand what people want. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. The film was shot in sequence, so as filming went on, the actors grew tired from the shooting schedule. The characters they played would also look more and more tired as the night went on. (laughs) Wolfman Jack, who played himself in the movie, was specifically chosen by George Lucas to play a role in this movie because Lucas remembered listening to him on the radio when he was in high school. Um, Ironically, George Lucas missed his high school reunion because he was too busy shooting this film. (laughs) 
the owner of the Thunderbird was never more than a few feet away from his prized possession during filming and was always wiping here and shining there. He also drove Suzanne Summers crazy telling her what to do and what not to do. Who is Suzanne Summers in this movie? Um, let me check the cast. Suzanne Summers. Trying to find her in the thing, but she's not very high up on the cast list. The only thing I can think of is maybe she was the girl who was in Harrison Ford's truck at the beginning. But that wouldn't make any sense. Suzanne Summers is credited as blonde in T-Bird. Oh, all right. Guess so. There are, there. I think he switched girls a couple he times. He did, yeah. I noticed that. It was a, a nice touch to kind of show who he was without <laughs> giving him much dialogue or anything. Yeah. When John and Carol, which is the hot rod and the girl. Mm-hmm are sitting at the red light. A car full of girls pulls up next to them. One of the girls throws a water balloon through the window and it hits Carol. It was scripted to hit the side window and drench Philip's face, who was then supposed to act really angry. However, she was accidentally hit square in the face and unable to refrain from laughing. Still, she kept going, ad-libbed through the scene, and George Lucas kept it, as he did with many presumably garbled first takes in this movie. (laughs) Which... Something happened to George Lucas at some point when he stopped <laughs> making art and started making products, and I don't know what happened. I guess uh, Star Wars. I guess Star Wars happened, but like th- I bet you, in any of the the prequels, there's no trivia like that where it's like Obi Wan Kenobi was supposed to yeah. say this, and, and instead he garbled the line, and they kept it anyway, and it sounds the most iconic thing in the film. Yeah, just uh, George Lucas, man. <laughs> Mel's drive-in was demolished after the movie was completed, but the owner's son, Steve, decided to reopen other Mel's restaurants in 1981 as a small chain. There are two in Hollywood, California, themed after the movie, and one in San Francisco where George Lucas is known to eat occasionally. The film was previewed before an audience of young people in North Point Theater, San Francisco, on a Sunday morning, with Universal Pictures had Ned Tannen in attendance. In a story that is now legendary in Hollywood, Tannen was not impressed with the film despite a good audience reaction and called it unreleasable. Francis Ford Coppola, enraged at the comment, offered to buy the film from Universal. <clears throat> Some stories claim that he offered to write them a check then and there. While exhausted, burnt out, and a little George Lucas wanted, watched in shock. A compromise was finally reached in which Universal could suggest modifications to the movie uh, resolution Lucas was not happy with as it took control of the film away from him which we know from star wars he likes to have total control but like so what happened did did universal suggest any changes i guess i don't know it wasn't nothing dissatisfied with the name american graffiti producers fred francis ford coppola and ned tannen suggested that george lucas retitle it another slow night in modesto or rock around the block gross yeah Ugh. that's awful Another Ugh. slow night in Modesto. You know what movie I really want to go see, Katie? Another <laughs> slow night in Modesto. Sounds riveting. Titles are so important. Why don't studios understand that? I don't know. Ugh. Okay, whatever. 
Filming was beset by a series of misfortunes and disasters. The day before filming was due to start, a key member of the crew was arrested for growing Mary Joanna. On the first night of shooting, it took so long to get the cameras mounted onto the cars that filming didn't get started until 2 a.m., putting the crew half a night behind schedule before they'd even started. Most of the outdoor footage was to be shot in San Rafael. After the first night of shooting, the city revoked the crew's filming permit due to complaints from a bar owner that their blocking off of the main street was costing him business. Filming proceeded in San Rafael for three more nights and moved to Pataluma, 20 miles away. On the second night of shooting, a fire in a nearby restaurant brought fire trucks into the area, their sirens and resulting traffic jam preventing any filming. That's no good. That's what happens when you try to shoot exteriors at night. Yeah. Screenwriters Willard Hyuk and Gloria Katz wanted an additional title card at the end detailing the fates of the women, but George Lucas refused, arguing it would prolong the ending. Oh, shut up, George Lucas. Sh- shut up, George. The 55 Chevy Bob Felfa drove is the same 55 Chevy used in the movie Two Lane Blacktop. The film's budget was approximately $775,000 but it was del- and it was delivered on time and on budget. Lucas's previous film THX 1138 was budgeted at $777,000 700 $777,777.77. Okay. There's a rumor that while George Lucas and a co-worker were editing the film, the co-worker asked Lucas for Real 2, Dialogue 2, which abbreviated to R2-D2, <laughs> a name which surfaced in Lucas's later film, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. <laughs> Wolfman Jack's line, Sticky Little Mothers, Ain't They, while shaking Richard Dreyfuss's hand was improvised. Playing of oldies in the soundtrack became part of a 70s trend where various recordings by the original artists were used to score a film. Three scenes that were added to the 1978 re-release were cut from the original release as a result of the compromise with Universal Studios. George Lucas put them back in after Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope was released, which is something that George Lucas loves to do is keep making his movies after they're done. <laughs> I suppose that's true, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> when Steve and Lori are introduced at the hop, the MC says the next dance will be a snowball and leading it off are. A snowball dance means the lead-off couple, Steve and Lori in this case, are supposed to dance with each other for only a short period, then split and dance with two others. When they split and dance with then they split and dance with four others until everyone is dancing. But Steve and Lori are so engrossed in their conversation and memories that they are oblivious to the others. When you watch the film, notice the other kids in the background looking expectantly for them to split off. Mm. That's cool. Yeah. That's that's a nice little touch. That's so clever. I'm sure George Lucas fought against that. (laughs) Oh, man. Richard Dreyfuss recalls that he was often called onto the set early during camera setups because the plaid shirt he wears for much of the film made made for an effective test pattern. (laughs) In 2007, the American Film Institute ranked this as the 62nd greatest movie of all time. Huh. Yep, that's that's the face that uh, <laughs> says that you disagree. <laughs> what do you think is the 62nd greatest film of all time, if you're so smart? Uh, uh, I don't know. I would say Back to the Future, but I think it's better than that. <laughs> 
The street gang, the Pharaohs, that kidnap Richard Dreyfus in the film are based on George Lucas's car club cohorts growing up in Modesto called the Pharaohs. Uh, but they spelled it with F uh, F A R O S mm. because they're not smart. About 300 pre-1962 cars were needed to create the cruising scenes and over a thousand classic car owners who responded to ads and local newspapers were interviewed. Cool. Paul and Matt, Harrison Ford, and Bo Hopkins were often drunk between takes and had conducted climbing competitions to the top of the local Holiday Inn sign. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) During the sequence in which John and Carol smeared shaving cream on the 1968 Cadillac and deflated the tires, Paul and Matt actually jumped onto and over the car during each take, and George Lucas became concerned that Lamette's boots would put dents in the hood and trunk. That would not be good. Yeah, especially since it's somebody else's car. Mm-hmm. Shot in 29 days. Set designer Roger Christian claims he added the pair of dice hanging in the Millennium Falcon cockpit briefly seen when Chewbacca bumps his head on them as he first enters because there were dice hanging in Harrison Ford's car in American Graffiti. However, Ford's character had a skull hanging from his rearview mirror. Ron Howard had the fluffy dice. Oh. The movie was shot almost exclusively at night. <clears throat> After the success of Easy Rider, Universal Pictures hit on the idea of letting young filmers make semi-independent films on low budgets in hopes of generating similar profits. The idea was to make five movies for a million dollars apiece, or hopefully less, not interfere in the filmmaking process, and give the director's final cut. The other movies were The Hired Hand, The Last Movie, Taking Off, and Silent Running. <laughs> Which is a good idea. Like, why not make a hundred one million dollar pictures? Rather than $100 million picture. Well. You could give so many more people jobs and you could potentially make so much more profit. Right. But I guess probably the worry is if you don't have a lot to work with, you're not going to get a lot of great things in your movie, I guess. Hmm. I don't know. Well, I disagree. Well, (laughs) I disagree too, but I'm just saying that's probably what they're thinking. I I know. Re-released as a double feature with The Sting in 1973. You ever seen The Sting, Katie? Nope. It's a good con movie. Mm. The scene after the drag race in which John admits to Terry that he was losing when Falfa's car lost control and rolled was improvised by Paula Matt and Charles Martin Smith. They had not had time to prepare for that scene as it had been scheduled to be shot at another time. Mm. Again, something I'm sure George Lucas like fought heavily against <laughs> and Francis Ford Coppola had to be like, dude, come on. Yeah. That's good. The soundtrack was originally to consist of some 80s class, some 80 classic rock song from the 1950s and 1960s, but the budget couldn't stretch far enough to pay for the rights to these songs. The total was eventually whittled down to 45, with all the Elvis Presley songs left out. It was widely known that Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, was extremely demanding when it came to Elvis material prior to 1977. There was a 40th anniversary special on NBC in 1976. Parker reportedly demanded $50,000 to release a clip of Elvis on Texaco Star Theater. The clip was not shown at that time. (laughs) Director trademark THX uh, 1138 license plate on John Milner's car, um, which is a film also directed by George Lucas. Uh, two cameras were used simultaneously in scenes involving conversations between actors in different cars. This resulted in significant production time savings. Hmm. 
<laughs> I agree. The more things you can shoot at once, the less time you have to spend shooting other things. Yeah. As the plane takes off in the final scene, a drive-in movie screen can be seen in the distance. This was the original screen at the Solano Drive-In, which operated until the fall of 2004, and has since reopened, showing double features as of December 2008. Mm. The scene in which Steve assures Lori he is staying in town and not going with Kurt was shot in one take. Ron Howard and Cindy Williams had already been released from shooting and were in their street clothes when they were told to put their costumes back on so they could shoot the scene. (laughs) When the rear wheels and axle of Halstein's police car get yanked out by the cable, there's a movie theater in the background. The movie listed on the marquee is Francis Ford Coppola's Dementia 13. Huh. The Douglas DC-7 airplane shown at the end of the movie was previously owned by the rock group Grand Funk Railroad. (laughs) That's such a weird piece of trivia. Like, who cares? Uh, Harrison Ford was arrested one night while in a bar fight and being and kicked out of his hotel motel room. I assume during filming. Otherwise, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, just, who cares? Just ever, <laughs> just once. <laughs> First credited screen appearance of Kathleen Quinlan. She plays Peggy, a girl who conf- comforts Laurie, who just broke up with her boyfriend. Laurie's boyfriend is played by Ron Howard, also director of Apollo 13, in which Quinlan starred. Okay. Mark Hamill auditioned for a part. Must not have gotten it. Mm-mm. George Lucas turned down offers to direct, La- to direct Lady Ice, Tommy, and Hair in order to make this film. <laughs> the cartoon movie poster was drawn by longtime Mad Magazine artist Mort Drucker, who ended up also doing the artwork for American Graf- Confetti, a parody of this film. <laughs> The Ford Coupe, driven by Paul Lamart's character, had a 1966 Chevrolet 327-cubic-inch engine. The black 1955 Chevy, driven by Harrison Ford, had a Chevrolet 454-cubic-inch engine capable of doing 11-second quarter-mile times. That means nothing to me. Harrison Ford's card was faster. Oh, okay. Um... There's a lot of trivia, so we're just Sounds gonna like we're just gonna skip through the rest of it. The original versions and title for John Milner indicated that he was killed in June 1964. Versions of the film released from 1979 on indicate that Milner died December of 1964. This is presumably a revisionist move to bring the film in line with the sequel, more American Graffiti, where the filmmakers chose to follow four separate character storylines with each take place. In December of a different year, Milner in 64, Toad in 65, Debbie in 66, Stephen Laurie in 67. Interesting. This doesn't seem like the kind of movie that needs a sequel. Yeah, well, More American Graffiti was made six years later by completely different people (laughs) and uh, has a way lower score on IMDb than this one does. Like an entire two stars. (laughs) All right, let's see. Yes. What are we seeing? I'm stretching. Sorry. Okay. This is not great radio. Um, <laughs> here's a fun little survey question. Mm-hmm. If not American Graffiti, what would you have named this movie? Ooh. Uh, another Slow Night in Modesto. No. <laughs> um, I would call it uh, Four Dumb Guys. And the Women Who Love Them. <laughs> yeah. There we go. That's it. 
I love adding and the women who love them to things. Yeah. It's so great. <laughs> like, I don't know. American Hi-Fi and the women who love them. March of the Penguins and the women who yes! love them. Yes! <laughs> oh my god. I would watch the heck out of that movie. You just have to watch me watching March of the Penguins. Yeah. That's the same thing. <laughs> uh, what else? Like. Um... <laughs> um, I don't know. Moby Dick and the woman who <laughs> loves him. Um, Bambi. <laughs> Bambi and him. and the women who love him. <laughs> or, or like, oh, what what else could you do that to? Like, you could do it to bands easily. Mm-hmm. You could do it to some movies. Uh-huh. You could do it to like sports teams, I guess. Like the Indiana Pacers and the women who love them. Mm -hmm. Like that would be a good memoir of like a basketball groupie. I suppose. That's true. Yeah. If you were stranded on a desert island, Mm -hmm. what are three things from this film that you would have? I guess a car. Okay. There weren't really a lot of things in this movie. Um, I'm going to go with a car. Um, Oh, a water balloon and buzz and probably something like i don't know did the cop have a gun or something probably yeah i'll probably take a cop gun too okay i would take the radio transmitter oh (laughs) a microphone and the whiskey all right and let's see, who do you think would be most likely to help you out of a jam? Oh, probably the character whose name I can't remember who drove around with a little girl. Or the little girl. Caroline. Carol. Or Carol. 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 Probably either her or the guy. John. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, you have any other thoughts on this film before we head um, out? Um... It was an enjoyable movie, but I don't think I'll ever need to watch it again. Okay. Um, I think it's dumb that they made a sequel. Mm-hmm. I kind of enjoyed the uh, think they did at the end, though. What are they at the end? At the end credits, where they kind of give the fates of all the characters. Oh, I think that was a thing in the 70s. Didn't they do that in Sandlot, too? I don't remember. Um, but I thought that was an interesting way of giving it closure while at the same time just being done. So. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why there didn't need to be a sequel. That's definitely true. But there should have been those for the women. Yes. Jeez, George Lucas. I hate you. Man, you're right up there with Ray Kroc. Oh, oh my God. (laughs) I hate Ray Kroc. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. (laughs) Well, darling. Yes, dear. What's uh what's up next? What's next week? We're going to watch My Girl starring Macaulay Culkin, aka The Good Son. Mm. <laughs> um also, you should email us at sharingeverythingshow@gmail.com and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Yeah, why don't you? I don't know. Why don't you? I don't know. Why don't I? Well, yeah, why haven't you? <laughs> Because I don't have iTunes. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, until next time, keep loving, keep talking, (laughs) keep practicing safer sex, and keep sharing. 
Bye.